You know, my, my wife, she grew up in the church her whole life, her whole life. So we just wanted you to know that these are actually poker chips and not tokens. She just doesn't know. Never gambled a day in her life. She's so innocent. I didn't know what they were either until Tim told me, one of our elders, but I had to say no. No, make sure you have one of these. So if you don't, slip your hand up. Let the ushers get you one. Slip your hand up if you don't have it because I want you holding this during the service. We're going to talk about them at the end. Come on, so keep your hand up. Let the ushers find you. Just keep it up until they get to you. So you, you're going to want one of those tokens. That's what we'll call them now. So, hey, let's do some giveaways. Come on, we like to do giveaways here at the City Life Church. And so, you know, I was thinking, what are we going to do? What are we going to do for the giveaways? It's an anniversary service. They are gift cards to the Gap because we're talking about living in the Gap. Come on. A little bit larger of a gift card. Come on, since it's our anniversary service. So you can go and maybe do a little bit of, of shopping. And so I was talking to, to Steve Walls, and he was saying, you know, you should connect the giveaways to the fast. And I thought, oh, come on, that's a good idea. I know. So Steve Walls, kudos to Steve Walls. All right, so who here is the oldest person that's been on the fast with us? Let's give them a gift card. Come on, the oldest person. All right, if you, you got to be willing to say your age to get the gift. It's, it's a $20 gap gift card. So any, any, Sonia, how old? 56. Anybody older than 56 been doing the, the fast? Come on. Anybody else? No? Going once? Going twice? All right, Miss Sonia. Nice. All right, let's, let's go in the other direction. Youngest person. And, and, and that you participated in the food fast. We know lots of people fasted in different ways, but in the, in the actual food fast, that you're, you're hungry with the rest of us. Youngest person. Tara? How old? <laughs> She's like, what are you talking to me for? 17. Anybody else younger than 17 that's been doing the food fast? Going once, going twice. Come on, give it up for Tara. The person who's dropped the most pounds. All right. So, so and if you've already won one, you're, you're, out, you're out of the running. So I've, dropped, so I've dropped 10, so you have to at least have, have lost more than 10. All right, Amanda, 11, who else? Clem, 15, Steve, 14. I know Cord's answer, so I'm looking around. I know his number. Anybody else want to keep going? Rose, 16. Nobody's getting close to Cord yet. What, what Jason, 18. All right, Cord's 23, is that right? Anybody else can beat 23? All right. He, he dropped more pounds than the gift card's worth. That's, that's, that's worth something right there. That's worth something. That's more than a dollar, not quite a dollar a pound. All right, let's, let's do this one. Let's do this one. The person who's, it's the longest you've ever fasted, a food fast, the longest you've ever fasted. All right, now let's, let's break it down this way. The, the longest you've ever fasted and that you're it's the newest follower of Christ. So you've been a follower of Christ for how long? Kim stuck, her, Kim stuck her tongue out at me just for the record. So Christ followed for how long? Um, like a little over a month. Anybody else got that beat? Yes. Three weeks. All right. I, I say I have two left. Let's give each of them one. Come on. We'll give them each one. 
Nice. Nice. You guys enjoy those. Come on, good for you guys for fasting so quick early in your walk. And that's part of why we did the fast is we want people to know, hey, it's not for the super spiritual. It's, it's for every person. Fasting should be a regular part of your life. I remember when I fasted just days after I had, when I was 23 years old to have uh, made a decision to become a Christ follower. Not a believer. We don't like to use that word because a lot of people believe. Come, the devil believes in Jesus. Are you tracking? He believes. We're followers. Our belief instructs us in the way that we live. And so I, I, when I was 23 and, and uh, just days after I made a decision to, to, to uh, I made a vow of devotion to Christ, felt like God said, hey, I want you to fast. And so that night as I was uh, falling asleep, I felt like God asked me this question. I've never heard God's audible voice. I like to say I feel it. And uh, he said, are you hungry? And he kept asking me that question over and over. And, and, and I knew he wasn't hard of hearing. He was trying to teach me something. And so uh, I just kept saying, yes, Lord, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. And he said that, you know, the same way that your physical body hungers for food, this new life that's been born inside of you, it hungers for my word every day. And so that made such a profound, and it's one of the reasons why we fast is we want to remind ourselves that there's another part of who we are that we're often disconnected with that gets hungry and thirsty. Jesus said, what blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We want to be in touch with the hunger and the thirster, thir the thirsting of the eternal part of who we are. And so I know that right now for all of us that have been fasting, come on, 20 days, I'm standing in between you and maybe your first bite of food. But I haven't been eaten either, so I have no pity for you. <laughs> and I would also say that we're, the meal that we're getting ready to eat is the better meal. And Jesus said, man should not live by bread alone, but by all kinds of meats and cheeses. No, that's not what it says. <laughs> man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So I would say we're not postponing the feast. Come on, the feast is about to begin. So, Father, we know that you are the greatest chef. And the meal that you prepare for the part of us that lives forever May we say, as your word says tonight, that we would taste and see that you are good. That your word, that those truths are like honey on our palate, oh God. And that something deep inside of us would be full. I can't eat another bite full even before we take our first, first morsel of natural food, oh God. That we would feast upon your word tonight. In Jesus' name, come on. And everybody said, amen. amen. So tonight what I want to do is we're going to do a few things, but I want, to, I want to introduce you to the theme that I believe that God has spoken over our church for 2012. That I believe this, this phrase, living in the gap, which is what's on your, on your chip there that, that, that you have for you uh, in your hand, that, that this is the word that God has spoken over our congregation. And so we're going to talk about, I believe, what that means tonight for you and for me, for us collectively as a congregation. And then we're going to keep coming back to it throughout the year, this idea of living in the gap. So, but to just get us thinking along the right direction. Man on Wire. It's a documentary by director James Marsh in 2008 it says on August 7th of 1974 just days before his 25th birthday a young Frenchman come on you know I like that with the last name Michaud named Philippe Petit or as we say in Verona where I grew up Philip Pettit <laughs> Philippe Petit who was a wire walker he was a juggler he was a street performer he stepped out on a wire 
illegally rigged between New York's, what was formerly the Twin Towers. At that time, the world's tallest buildings. Tallest buildings in the whole world, 1974. And after nearly an hour of dancing on the wire, he was arrested and he was taken for psychological evaluation. Obviously, right? He was brought to jail and then he was finally released when they realized who he was and what he was doing. Following six and a half years of dreaming, six and a half years of dreaming of those towers, Petit spent eight months in New York City planning the execution of the coup. Aided by a team of friends and accomplices, Petit was faced with numerous extraordinary challenges. He had to find a way to bypass the World Trade Center security system. He had to smuggle this heavy steel cable and rigging equipment into the towers, up to the top, out on the roof, past the wire. They had to figure it out between the two rooftops, anchor the wire, tension it to withstand the winds and the swaying of the buildings. Buildings that tall, they move, they sway. They had to figure all that out. The rigging was done at night in complete darkness, complete secrecy. And at 7.15 a.m., Philippe took his first step onto the high wire. Any guesses how tall? 1,350 feet up in the air, no net. James Marsh's documentary brings Petit's extraordinary adventure to life through the testimony of Philippe himself and some of the co-conspirators who helped him create the unique and magnificent spect spectacle that had become known as the artistic crime of the century. I want to be an accomplice and a co-conspirator with people to dream God-sized dreams. If there was ever a picture for you and I of what heaven needs to see us doing as it looks down and the world around us looks up and watches us as we follow Christ, let it be a picture just like that. That we would dare to believe that our lives can accomplish something extraordinary. That we would be willing to believe that we can step off of the one tower of our humanity and begin to make our way, come on, not trembling, but dancing on our way to the other tower of Christ's divinity. That we would live a life in such a way that says, I'm going to dream a God-sized dream that would cause onlookers to say, I'm not even sure that's possible. And that would cause heaven to look down upon us and to cheer us on as we take our step out onto the wire of life. May it be for you and me. There will be a day where I will be in a building like this and I will be in a box right here. And some other preacher is going to be up there with a eulogy in his hand. I tell my wife all the time, I don't want to pay for the vacation package of the funeral home director for that year. Put me in a pine box. You spend that money on yourself and my kids. You, you do the cheapest thing that you can because I'm not there anymore. Come on, I'm not there anymore. But there's one thing that is going to be there. Hopefully some people that are crying. It's good if people cry when you're gone. You don't want people saying, whew, glad that's over. I want people to say, that man in that box inspired me to dream big.
I want my children, when they think about their father, to say, of all the things that he did, he inspired me to dream a God-sized dream. I want people who call the City Life Church their home because, come on, that's the, where my box is going to be. Come on, we're in this thing for the long haul. I want the church to say, he inspired us to dream a dream so big that only God could do it. And I believe that in 2012, we as a church are going to discover a new appetite to dream bigger that we're going to discover a new way to dream to greater heights, to greater depths, and to greater breadths for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if there is ever a verse that speaks to this sentiment that we're declaring over ourselves today and over this congregation, we find it in Psalm 124, 1 and 2. It says, Israel, in the text, we've inserted the City Life Church in there. What if the Lord had not been on our side? Let all of City Life repeat. Let it say, what if the Lord had not been on our side when? And then as you read in Psalm 124, the Israelites began to, to repeat some things throughout their history that would have been impossible for them to have done, to have overcome, to endured on their own. But God was on their side. They were able to dream a God-sized dream. They were able to do the extraordinary. They were able to step out on to the wire. And so what I'm hoping, what I'm praying, what I'm believing for myself, for my family, for each of you, is that by this time next year, you're going to know what you're putting in that blank. That by this time next year, even if it's just something that you're beginning to do, that you're going to dream a God-sized dream for yourself for your family, that you're going to be able to say that I'm not going to be able to do it if I just try a little harder. If you can do it if you try a little harder, it's not a God-sized dream. We've got to be willing to dream a dream that's so big that when we come to the end of ourselves, that God's able to step in and he's able to fulfill it and see it through. Stepping off of the tower of our humanity, working our way towards the tower of his divinity, a Psalm 124 existence a life stepping out on the wire, living in the gap. It's my prayer for you in 2012. It's my prayer for me for 2012. And it is our great hope collectively as a congregation, as a church, that we're going to dream a dream for our own lives, but we're going to come together as a church family. Come on. And we're going to dream a big dream to see this region transform. And so to dig around in this idea of living in the gap, if I could create my own heading for this text of Scripture, it would be that. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 7. We don't have them out there yet, but I'll email the tech team these notes, and they'll be out on the, on the website. Every week we put our outline for the sermon on the web so that you can go back and look at the Scripture references. But Matthew 7, 13 through 23. And this teaching by Jesus is broken up into three parts. And so I'm going to read, not all of it now, but I'm going to read each one as we connect them to the, the thought that we're going to explore together. We're going to do three. But this idea of living in the gap, you find it in Matthew 7, 13 to 23. It is, the, it is the capstone teaching of the greatest sermon that Jesus ever taught, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Together in this text, we're going to see why so few people dream a God-sized dream with their lives. Psalm 124 existence, out on the wire, living in the gap. 
We want to not just be a church that inspires you, but we want to be a church that teaches you how to leave this room and go do the things that God has called you to do. Matthew 7, it's no accident that Jesus wraps up his greatest sermon that he ever gave with these principles and with these teachings because he wants people to go and do. He doesn't want people to go and just be inspired. He wants them to go and live it out. And so that's why he wraps up this sermon with this teaching. And the first one is this, the life that he promises. We're going to talk about the life he promises. We're going to talk about the fruit that he seeks. And we're going to talk about the work that he demands, how those are connected together, how they build upon each other, and how they prepare us to dream a God-sized dream. So the first part is this, Matthew 7, 13 through 14. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate... For the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. I want to talk about that word, how it contrasts with the word that comes later, life. And there are many who go through it. But how narrow is the gate and difficult is the road that leads to life and few find it. Now this word destruction, when we think about how we use it in our lives, it's oftentimes it's something that was there and then something happens, an event takes place and then it's gone. If you've lived through a hurricane, oftentimes living in this region, maybe your house has been destroyed by some natural disaster. It was there, there was destruction, and then it was gone. Earthquakes, tornadoes, floodings, fires, it was there, it was destroyed, and then it was gone. But that's not the connotation of this word here. It's important that we, that we dig around in the language that Jesus uses so that we can understand what he's trying to communicate to us. This word destruction in the Greek carries with it a connotation of waste. It carries with it a connotation of loss. It carries with it a connotation of ruin that happens over a long period of time. What's he saying? He's saying that you and I were created in this life and given a treasure of a gift, the potential to f fulfill a destiny that was dreamed in the heart of the creator of the universe. If there is any picture that you find from looking into the universe that you would realize that God gave that same kind of intentionality to the plan that he's created for your life, it's just as vast, it's just as beautiful, and it should be just as awe-inspiring. And what Jesus is saying to us is that we can live our lives throughout all of our days on this wide path. It's what most people do, squandering the potential of the divine inside of each of us. That we live our lives in such a way that we absolutely throw away the possibilities to do something extraordinary for God. It's the path that most people are on. It's the path to destruction. This idea of destruction speaks to, to squandering our life, and it also speaks to the ultimate moment of destruction that will eventually come for all those who reject Christ. It's all right there in the text. But then he says, how narrow is the gate and difficult is a road that leads to life. And this word he picks for life here is not the word bios, not the Greek word bios, which means physical life, right? That's the word that gives us biology. He picks the Greek word zoe for life here, which carries with it a connotation of meaning, carries with it a connotation of purpose. It carries with it a connotation of, of deep, inexpressible fulfillment. It's, it's the kind of moment in life where, 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 where something happens. Maybe it's on the, the moment that your children were born or the day that you stood at the altar and said, I do, you just felt so alive. Jesus says, come on, 
I can make you feel that way all the days of your life when you are. Is it hard? Sure it is. Is it a narrow path? Absolutely it is. But if you will give yourself to the path that I have for you, the road that I want you to walk down, you will experience a depth and a meaning of fulfillment and life in this existence that can be described only one way as heaven on earth. So this week I got to hang out with some old friends of mine that I used to get into trouble with. We're all married and have kids now, and I think some of them are still getting into trouble a little bit, to tell you the truth, but, but it was good. I drove, I met them in Richmond at 8.30. One of my buddies, he owns a, a, a Cuban restaurant in Richmond, Cuba Cuba, if you ever have a chance to go there. It's amazing food. But I do not recommend a meeting like that when you're on your ninth day of your fast. So it's like, I'm not going to eat, I'm not going to eat. Are those fried plantains you just dropped into the fryer? So we're sitting around and talking, and, and so one of my buddies, it was just he and I at this point, and, and I was just sharing with him a little bit about my journey. He listens to these podcasts, so Rob, if you're listening, come on, it's, it was good seeing you this week. He lives down in Miami. So I was talking about this idea of heaven on earth, and he said, he said, wait, is, is that in the Bible somewhere? I said, oh, you better believe it is. Come on, Psalm 27, 13, it's a life verse for our church. I would have lost heart if I had not believed that I would have seen the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Jesus wants you and I to experience a depth of life that can be described as none other as heaven on earth. This year, we're going to be talking about it more in March. We're, we're shrinking down our vision statement to something that just simply says, heaven now, heaven forever. That's what we believe as a church, that God wants to give to you, and he wants us to give to the world. The first heaven's a little H. The, big one, the next heaven's the big H. Heaven now, expressing an experience of life that Jesus wants you to find and heaven forever, the place that we can spend with him for all eternity. He wants each of us to have it. He wants each of us to, to be passionate about it. And he wants each of us to carry this message into the world, into restaurants, wherever we might be, to share it with those who maybe don't know the promise. He has a life that he wants us to have. He doesn't want us to squander this existence. It's reminiscent of John 10.10 where Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the fullest possible measure in the here and now. In the here and now. Listen to this in Luke 6, 38. I love this verse. Given, you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full. Pressed down, shaken together. Make room for more. Running over and poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. And unfortunately, the, the prosperity message that's out there that's so harmful in the, in the church that's been around for, for years and then it keeps just rearing its ugly head, it pigeonholes this as a material verse, but it's not a material verse. Is, is there something about the material favor of God? Absolutely. there. That's another sermon for another time. But I think the greatest application of this verse is connecting it to Matthew 7, that if you will give yourself to a belief that there is a life that you can have, if you will give yourself to a vision that Jesus' way of life is far better than anything you could ever hope for, if you would give yourself to a vision that anything that he asks you not to do, it's not because he's trying to rob you of pleasure, but it's because he's trying to rescue you from mediocrity. If you would give yourself to a belief and a conviction and a passion that there is a Zoe, there is a life. Is it hard? Sure it is sometimes. Is it a narrow road? Absolutely. Is the gate, does it feel small? Or does it feel like the rest of the world is out doing something else and we feel a little alone at times? Yes, it does. Oh, but if you will give yourself to that belief. Oh, if you will give yourself 
to that idea that there is a life that he wants you to describe, then Jesus says to you, come on, then it will return to you in full, that it won't just be a dream, it's going to become a reality. It won't just be an idea in your heart, it's going to be the expression and the description of your life. I love when I call Nate Nawat and he's on a governance team. I say, hey, how are you doing? He says the same thing every time. Live in the dream. Come on, live in the dream. Anybody ever heard Nate say that? Live in the dream. That should be the resounding sentiment of our heart. I am living the dream. And on the days where maybe our lives don't feel like a dream, we turn to Luke 6.38 and we say, I give myself to this vision. I give myself to this belief. Reciprocity has just as much to do with the intangible as it does with the tangible. You give yourself to this belief. I am telling you there is something that comes back to you. It determines what you get back. So Ephesians 3, 19 and 20, this is another important verse for our church because it connects this idea of walking in the life that Jesus wants you to have and your ability and your capacity to dream a God-sized dream. Come on, we want you to figure it out. Jesus wants you to know how to do it. Verse 19, it says, May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully, then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. What's Paul talking about? He's talking about this Zoe. He's talking about this life. He's talking about this narrow path. He's talking about living this life, giving yourself to this vision of a dream and making sure that, that it's the life that you're walking in. And, then, and listen to where Paul turns in verse 20. It's not coincidental, it's causal. Now, all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us, again, pointing back to the life that he's called us to live, to accomplish infinitely more than we could ever ask or think. In another translation, it renders it exceeding abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think. Your capacity, my capacity, our ability to dream a God-sized dream is born out of you and I waking up today and tomorrow and every other day for the rest of our lives and saying, there is no other life that I want to have except the one life that Jesus died for me to possess. And as long as I'm living in that life, as long as I'm walking in his life, then I maintain my capacity to dream a God-sized dream and accomplish a destiny that only he could fulfill. I was created to dream a God-sized dream. And until I give myself fully to the one life Jesus died for me to possess, my God-sized dream will remain a hope in God's heart instead of being the reality of my existence. Psalm 124 existence, out on the wire. Come on, live it in the gap. All right, the fruit he seeks, because he keeps going. He wants you to understand the life that you're called to, because he wants you to understand it's your ability to dream a God-sized dream, but then he wants us to know how we can do it. He wants us to understand how we can walk in it, how we can take steps, so he keeps going. So in verse 15, it says, Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit. So now he introduces this idea of fruit. So he talks about life, now he's talking about fruit. That is, by the way, they act. Can you pick grapes? From thorn bushes or figs, from thistles, a good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Come on, verse 20. 
Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, you can identify people by their actions. He wants us to be able to look around into the world and ask of ourselves, am I experiencing the life that Jesus died for me to possess? And he also wants us to look out into the world around us and ask that of other people. We're asking people to take places of leadership in our church. You know what? I'm asking this question. Is there fruit in their life that demonstrates that they're living the life? Is there fruit in their life that demonstrates that they're on the straight and narrow? Is there fruit in their life, not just, not just because we want leaders that have an example to follow, although that's important to us, but we want leaders in this church who know how to dream a God-sized dream. We want people at the core of this church who have the capacity to dream big, to live a life out on the wire. Now listen to this verse in Philippians 1:11, And Jesus begins to talk here, uh, or Paul, talk, referring to Jesus' teaching, he begins to reference here this idea of fruit. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation. And then he tells what this is. The righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. It will enable us to dream a God-sized dream for the greater glory of God, to make his name known and famous in the world. He talks about this idea of the fruit of your salvation. Matthew 3, 8, John the Baptist says, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. There should be evidence in a person's life that they're on the straight and narrow, that they're walking in the one life. We've been talking about these for the last couple of weeks. I'm not going to go into them in great detail, but you can get them on the podcast. But for us as a church, these are the six main fruits that we would say of the one life. If a person is walking in the life that Jesus has for them, the fruit of righteousness, there's the fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians, but here in the, that we see as a synopsis of all the teachings of Christ, here, these six, the fruits of one life, devotion to Jesus, intimacy with God, care of others, personal change or an appetite for personal transformation, diligence in ministry, and filled with the Spirit. All of these are based on the six great commands of Christ. The first one, follow me. The second one, love God. The third one, love one another. The fourth one, be ye therefore perfect in Matthew 5, 48. And then go into all the world and be filled with the Spirit. You can get the last couple of weeks, download that. We've been digging around in those the last couple of weeks for a reason, because we're building up to today. If you want to ask yourself, am I deep into the one life? Am I deep into the one life that Jesus died for me to have? Do these six things define who you are? Do these six things, are they the foundation of your existence? When people who are going to eulogize you one day when you're in that pine box, are they going to say about you, oh, how devoted they were to Christ? Oh, how they, they woke up every day. It was, as, it was as if God was their best and closest friend. The measure to which they cared for other people in the world and stepped into deep, authentic relationship with people was awe-inspiring. The journey of transformation, they, they just never stop being hungry to be transformed into the image of Christ. Oh, how they gave their life to the work of building God's kingdom. Oh, how their lives were just endued with the power of the Holy Spirit, enabling them to live and accomplish far more than what their humanity would ever allow. 
those six descriptions born out of the six great commands of Christ, it is the fruit of the one life that you and I have been called to live. And Jesus is saying, I'm looking for it. Why? Because as I begin to cultivate the fruit Jesus seeks, I will possess the one life that he promises. And then it starts to happen. A God-sized dream begins to take shape in my heart. A Psalm 124 existence out on the wire, living in the gap. All right, let's talk about this last one, the work he demands. The life he promises, the fruit he seeks, and the work he demands. So he wraps up this teaching right here, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. He says, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually, what, do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. And on judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We, we cast out demons in your name. We performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Those are strong words, aren't they? Now, there's lots of interpretations on this text, so I'm going to give you mine. This is what I believe. It's how we understand that. Because if we're not careful, it can be pretty perplexing, isn't it? Is it how, how could people do those things? How, how, how could someone, if they didn't know Christ, how could they prophesy in his name? How would they be able to cast out demons? And I believe the, the understanding of this text is that Jesus is saying to them, no, you didn't. I think he's saying, so you say. Just because you were in the room when it happened doesn't mean that you were the one that brought it about. I think he's saying to them, which is why it's written this way, that it was, what it doesn't say, Jesus isn't saying, hey, even though you prophesied in my name, it's not Christ's testimony of them, it's their testimony of themselves. And what Jesus is saying to them is, you're a stinking liar. He's saying, nobody else in this world who walked with you would say these things about you. Because not only did you not do those things, not only did you not do those things, you didn't do anything else that I asked you to do either. So how does he wrap it up? You who break the law. He's calling them spiritual criminals. They're spiritual criminals. They forsook the work that they were called to do with the breath that they had been given. So when you read this text, you shouldn't be afraid. You shouldn't say, well, well if I give my life, that, that Jesus, he's, he's precarious. He's persnickety. Come on. You like that word? I like that word, persnickety. He's not fickle. He knows who did what they were supposed to do, and he knows who didn't. Scripture says nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight, but everything is laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He knows. He knows. So when we come and we stand before him on judgment day, we don't come with a story that we've made up because he knows the truth. And if we've lived our life born out of this truth, then we don't have to be concerned about that day because then we're all going to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. There's another teaching that floats around, and it's getting a resurgence in a certain kind of the theological stream that works don't matter at all. It's all about grace. Now, we believe in grace. We believe that salvation can only come by grace. You can't work your way into God's good graces. It only comes through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. But you better believe we teach as a church, because of that grace that we have, we should have a sense of empowerment to transform and change from the person that we used to be and begin to pursue a life and begin to take up the work that we've been called to give. 
We talked about in the prayer service this week. What an incredible prayer service. We've got four more. If you weren't able to make it, you want to find those on the calendar. We had an amazing time in prayer together. And we talked about this in Luke 9.62. Come on, it takes work to pray sometimes. We prayed for an hour and 15 minutes. It takes work. That's why Jesus said in Luke 9.62 that, that no one's fit for the kingdom who puts their hand to the plow and looks back. And we joked on, on th- Thursday night that, that he didn't say those who put their hand to the spiritual recliner right? He picks something that represents sweat. He picks something that represents work. He picks something that represents labor, and he picked it for a reason, because there's a work to the life that we've been called to live. There's effort that we've got to bring. There's intentionality. There's choosing that we have to do to not do what we shouldn't and to do what we should. There's a work to it. That's why he wraps up this teaching. We have 12 works. We call them pathways. If you call this your home church, you should be able to get these 12 on a pop quiz at any moment in time. I'm just telling you. Find a way to learn them because you should be talking about them with the people in your world. You you don't need to know them so you can pass some test that you're going to be given. You should know them because you're running after them and you're telling other people about them. This is the plow right here. This is the work of our Christianity. I break them down into three groups of four. That's and helps me to remember them. The first four there, the, the what I think are the most typical pathways or spiritual disciplines: scripture, worship, prayer, and fasting. Praise the Lord, the one we're about ready to break. The next four all deal with relationship. Find a way to memorize them. Take the first letter of each one. Find a way. Gathering, reaching, accountability, relationship. Come on, now you're almost home. You only have four more. You can muddle through those somehow, right? Two are connected to material resources, stewardship, and generosity, and then you have rest and service. You should know what these 12 are. You should know what these 12 are because it's the work that you should be doing in your spiritual life. It is the labor of our Christianity to give ourselves to these 12 things. We call them pathways because they take you somewhere, but we teach them in all different ways. It's all throughout Scripture, these things that we're talking about tonight. But here in Matthew 7, the context that we're given, these are 12 works. These 12 works produce six fruits. And when I have those six fruits, come on, I'm living the one life. Philippians 2, 12 through 13 says this, So then, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, come on, but now even more in my absence. Work out your own salvation. What's he talking about? He's talking about the works. He's talking about prayer. He's talking about generosity. He's talking about accountability. He's talking about stewardship. Work it out, your salvation, with fear and trembling, not because we're afraid of a precarious God, but with a sense of fear and trembling and the sense of a holy reverence because we recognize that these 12 things are sacred. There are some things in this life that are not sacred. Raking leaves is one of them. Come on, you with me? There is work that we do in this life. Cleaning a toilet, there is nothing sacred about that. Changing diapers, there's there's work that has to be done in this life that's part of the curse that humanity suffers because of the sin of Adam and Eve. That's another sermon for another time. But there's also work that's sacred. It still requires effort. It can still be wearisome. It can still make us tired. It still means sometimes that we choose not to do other things so that we can do these. There is work involved. You might come in here on a Saturday night and you don't feel like worshiping, but you say to yourself, because I recognize it's a sacred work, I'm going to give myself to it nonetheless. And the next thing you know, you're caught up into it and you can't stop. Come on, that was a great exhortation that Amanda had for us. 
she was up there. And we like our musicians having microphones, not just so that they can sing, but so they can bring the word of the Lord in the moment as it is filling their heart. There is a work that we should be willing to commit ourselves to. And as a church, we're going to challenge you to work harder in your Christianity. We're going to challenge you to work harder with fear and trembling, not because you're afraid, but because you recognize the sacredness of that which he's called you to do. As I give myself to the work Jesus demands, I begin to cultivate the fruit that he seeks. And when I cultivate the fruit that he seeks, come on, I possess the one life he promises. And then it happens. A God-sized dream begins to take shape in my heart, out on the wire, living in the gap. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back. And we're going to sing a song together. I'm going to invite you to stand and pick up your, your chip. There's a time in a in a game of cards, when you look down and you think you've got the best hand and, and sometimes you make this statement, what is it? I'm all in. Yeah. So we're asking you tonight to be all in with us as a church family. That you're going to hold this chip and you're going to be all in with us to dream a God-sized dream. There's three groups of people that we believe as a church that we're called to reach There's the undevoted, there's the disconnected, and then there's the discipled. We're dreaming a God-sized dream for the undevoted this year in 2012. We're dreaming a God-sized dream that as a church, even though we may be smaller, that our impact is not going to be commensurate to our number. Come on, what does the Bible say? If one can put a thousand to flight, come on, you know it, to 10,000. We're going to dream a God-sized dream. Father, we say tonight, help us to dream a God-sized dream, to see the undevoted by the scores make vows of devotion to Christ here at this altar, at events out in the community as we begin to work with other churches, that we as a congregation would bring a clarion call to liberty in our region, that if you've not yet made a vow of devotion to Christ, you're living in spiritual bondage and there is a freedom that he wants you to have. We're dreaming a God-sized dream for the disconnected. We're dreaming a God-sized dream for people that they've made a decision for Christ but they're living their lives as spiritual orphans. We want to be a church that helps people rediscover their passion for the family of God. Whether it's here or somewhere else, that's not what matters to us. Is that we want to dream a God-sized dream that the message of our church, the example of our lives, as other people see it, that they would say, I'm living for less because I'm disconnected from the family of God. Father, so we pray tonight that a God-sized dream would begin to grow and build in the hearts of us as a church family, that we would see ourselves out into this community, that we would see ourselves partnering with other churches, whether they're of the same theological persuasion that we are or not. We'll find enough common ground to work together, that we want to see our region, we want to see the population of the spiritual orphan in decline in this area. And we're going to dream a God-sized dream for the disciples that for all of us, we're going to say to ourselves and be saying to you, there's more growing that needs to happen in your life. 
There's a clarion call to liberty. There's a clarion call to maturity. And there's a clarion call to community. And so, God, we say tonight that we would never stop growing. 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now, every one of us that still has breath, that we would wake up the next day saying, I want to grow to become more like Christ. I want to move farther on the wire. I want to get farther from my humanity. I want to get closer to his divinity. I want to live my life in the gap, out on the wire. May it be for all of us as a church in 2012 that we're going to live in the gap, that we're going to dream a God-sized dream, that we're going to reach the undevoted, oh God, that we're going to reach the disconnected and we're going to reach the disciple for your name's sake. Come on, let's worship together.